We acknowledge the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging, and to all Indigenous peoples worldwide who are tuning in. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews, the podcast that chats to inspiring women working in architecture and design. With me, Bridget Nathan. In this episode, we chat to Catherine Duggan about her international career, which started in Tasmania, then made its way to Tokyo, then back to Australia, where she's been based at Peter Elliott Architecture and Urban Design for the past 15 years. We chat about her experiences there and also in teaching at the University of Melbourne. Catherine is lucky to own a home designed by Robin Boyd. In fact, his most expensive commission to date, the Bridgeford House. And what a beautifully simple house this is, full of architectural delights. It was great to hold the interview there. Thank you, Catherine, for your time and for the brownies. They trusted us and took our advice. I think that's probably the most important, one of the most important things um, when you're working in architecture, working with a client, you've got to have their trust. Everyone needs to be heard, both the architect and the client, got to listen to each other. Thanks for having me, Bridget. I am a senior associate at Peter Elliott Architecture. Um, And yes, as you said, I own a Robin Boyd house, which is very fortunate for us. We love. So what would you like to know? It would be great to start with what got you into architecture in the first place. Where where are you from and where did it all begin? (laughs) Okay, so we're going to start at the start. Okay. That's good. Um, I am originally from Tasmania. I grew up and went to... Uh, school in Hobart and university at the um, University of Tasmania in Hobart. Yeah. Uh, so when I, I always knew I wanted to go to university, that yeah. was very clear to me at high school. That's that was going to be my path, and uh, but I wasn't really sure of what I wanted to do. So yeah. I looked at the university handbook, and I was always interested in doing fine arts, but I kind of mm. knew that I probably wasn't quite the right personality type to have a career in fine arts. Right. And sort of the kind of person that's a little bit more leaning towards problem solving than, yeah. than free expression. Yeah. Uh, so I read the handbook and I saw the, um, the course notes for the Bachelor of Environmental Design and mm. I was so excited because that outlined exactly what I was interested in. So yeah. I applied and luckily I got in. And it was in second year. I had a really great tutor in second year, Richard Blythe, and I realised in second year that I'd made the right choice and it's yeah. exactly what I wanted to do. So I did my three-year Bachelor of Environmental Design in Hobart and then my, I had a choice to move to Launceston where the second part of the degree was right. or to anywhere else in Australia. Yeah. And I sort of felt that... I would travel for I would work and travel for two years. I worked in an, a small architecture firm and for some landscape architects oh, for cool. a year. Then I travelled for a year. Um, I did the usual travel to Europe and a little bit in Asia. And then I decided to move to Melbourne to go to oh, the University of Melbourne, right? Because I figured that once I graduated, I'd want to be close to the profession. Yeah. And Realistically, there wasn't that much profession mm. in Launceston yeah, at yeah. that time. Some more opportunities in Melbourne, yeah. thinking to the future. That's right. Mm. So that's, that's what I did. And then I graduated from the University of Melbourne. And the, it was really good for me to do the degree in two different places because mm. the University of Tasmania was much more of a Beaux-Arts kind of university. And um, 
it had remnants of the kind of 1960s Barry McNeil mm. um, course structure, which was very much, you know, in first year we'd do performances. We had the most amazing people there. And so it was very much kind of Beaux-Arts tradition of project yourself into the space and really, um, you know, understand how someone uses mm. the space. But Melbourne University was very tectonic. It was about mm. materials and objects and um, defining space. So I think I was really fort- was fortunate for me, I think, to have the two different kinds of mm. um, university experience. Yeah. And um, which I really enjoyed. And then I graduated from Melbourne Uni and decided that I didn't want to go and work in architecture. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone seemed to be really depressed. And so I went to I went and worked. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest projects in town at that time was Federation Square and the National Gallery of Victoria was being redeveloped mm. on both um, campuses, so the Mario mm. Bellini intervention into the Roy Grounds building on St Kilda Road mm. and Fed Square, the new gallery was being built at Fed Square. So there was a job going at the gallery, took that and um, worked in exhibition design during the re- redevelopment. So oh, that would have been so interesting. <laughs> it was. We had, so we had to work with Mario Bellini and Lab mm. and the curators mm. of the NGV to work on permanent exhibitions cool. on both campuses. So that was, that was really interesting. Mm. And I think just after Federation Square opened, I decided I would move to Tokyo for a year. Mm, cool. And did that and worked for a, a very small... Um, architecture firm there uh, which was a really interesting experience so it was a lot at that time internships were really big so I could, you can get an internship mm. pretty much anywhere that was unpaid right um, but I couldn't afford to do that and I just yeah. didn't have the money so found someone that was willing to pay yeah a very small wage yeah and worked on competitions in their office for a year wow cool and then came back and I went back to Hobart. So going from Tokyo to Hobart was probably a mistake okay. because going from one of the world's biggest cities to bustling one of the world's smallest cities was yeah. a little bit of a, a a little bit of a mind shift. But I worked there for eight months, okay. um, and then thought, no, I can't stay here. I moved back to Melbourne, and I had a list of people I wanted to work for, and Peter Elliott was at the top of it, and so I went and. Did an interview with Peter and he looked at me and said, you sound really interesting, you're really interesting. Mm. We don't have any work. Right. But I'm going to hire you anyway. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Oh, great. I'm really really pleased (laughs) that you're going to do that. And and he also said, oh, people tend to stay a long time. And I remember thinking, oh, a long time's three years. I've been there 15 now. Oh, wow. How's, how has that been, seeing that evolution? It's, um, well, it's, what's great about the office is there's a really clear, we have really clear values and I think that's yeah. what attracted me to um, Peter's work in the first place. I really uh, liked the work he he was starting to do at that time at RMIT, the Urban Spaces Project. Right. It was really careful and considered yeah. work and I think that that's, formed a really solid foundation for Mm. the practice. And I think staying true to those values over the years has enabled us to um, 
not only keep clients but attract new ones and kind of bigger challenges right. and different kinds of clients. So we sort of work, we generally work with universities um, doing campus master plans right. or master plans um, and schools, which I, I find really interesting kind of getting into an organisation mm. uh, and, you know, figuring out its structure and uh doing a long-term strategy yeah. because in, on a school campus you really need to have that kind of big mm. picture vision. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but more recently we were um, fortunate enough to win a, I suppose it was a, an invited tender for the Parliament uh, Victoria. Wow, yeah, that project has <laughs> received so much media coverage. It, um, yeah, it would be great to kind of unpack what it was like working on that. Yeah, it's um, it was... I think we were a little bit shocked when we realised that we'd gotten the project. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we were really up for, and I think it was the right point in all of our careers. We were really ready for that challenge. Right. We, yeah, it was hard. It's sort of hard. It sounds a bit funny to say, but it was a really incredibly straightforward process. Yeah. Um, the clients were fantastic. Um, we, we took them to the awards, actually, which... We've never, never done before. We wanted to bring them into our world a little bit too. And they were thrilled. They were really, they loved their building, which yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> you always, I don't know, you always worry about yeah. lines not, not liking the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make sure they like it. Yeah, um, you sort of hand over this thing that you've been working on for ages, but then they're the ones that are going to inhabit yeah, it. Yeah, they, they own it. And so they, they really embraced it and they embraced the process with us as well, which was really good um trusted we had a really good trusting relationship with them they yeah really they trusted us and took our advice right and i think that's probably the most important one of the most important things um when you're working in architecture working with a client you've got to have their trust yeah. and um everyone needs to be heard both the architect and the client right. you've, got to, you've got to listen to each other yeah um so i think part of my role well my part of my role in that process was really to work with the clients really mm. closely um, to make sure that we were always aligned the whole way through. Right. And um, we, I think we managed it. The Parliament um, Victoria building was never built to house the Members of Parliament. Right. It was, it's, it was built in stages. Yeah. Um, by uh, the original architect was Peter Kerr. And there was never any office accommodation. So mm. the members ended up in a, um, an asbestos fibro annex out the back yeah. of Parliament House. Um, and that was built as a temporary building in the 70s. Right. And it, it just stayed because mm. I think it was always the case of um, trying to fund a project. Yeah. And not only fund it is how do you... How do you actually build a building for a hundred more than a hundred members on that site? Wow! So yeah, right in the middle of the city. It's right in the middle of the city. The heritage gardens mm. are attributable to Guilfoyle. Right. It's a heritage building, heritage wow. context. Yeah. The, the the building itself was unfinished, mm. so the south wing was never finished, and the north wing was only partially mm. complete. And so there were several. Um, there were so many studies done, master plans, reviews, changes of government, yeah. different changes of priority. And so every time I mm. think it was, it was difficult for, um, for the client to 
really get some traction on the project. Right. Uh, and I think it was, you know, the right place, right time, yeah. right people yeah. that came together to make yeah. it happen. So our building is 102 offices and it's uh, embedded into into the garden. Wow. So we had to really carefully navigate historic trees, the Fed, uh, Federation Oak. Yeah. Sort of at the end of the building, there's some right. incredible established trees yeah. in the garden. So we had to... In a way, the parameters of the site um, dictated where the building could go because we couldn't take out heritage trees. Yeah. Um, so we had to sort of mm, kind of work around work it. around it and get in between yeah. in between them. And it became really clear to us that a companion building was the right mm. felt was the right thing f- for the um, for the site, which meant that. If, uh, if the funding ever became available, Parliament, the original Parliament House could be actually completed. So we didn't rule right. out any of the options mm. to complete the building. Right. Um, and we said it. there's an incredible view from the library of Parliament House to um, St Patrick's Cathedral right. and, and into the gardens. Mm. So we set a datum for our building mm. that it couldn't be, it couldn't obstruct that view. Cool. And then we built down. Right. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering the reasoning for that sort of subterranean approach. It just looks so cool and there's so many images of people walking Mm. over it. Well, the gardens are incredibly important um, to Parliament. You know, there's news, live news um, coverage that happens from the garden. The members use it as a place to walk and have some time out. There's a bowling green. Cool. There, there was a tennis court. Oh, wow. Which, unfortunately, <laughs> was, we, it was taken out Yeah, to build the building. Yeah. But it was important. So we took out some garden, but we put back 100% mm. of what we, what we oh, removed. Cool. And it also meant that the rooftop of our building could be planted. It's planted as an Indigenous mm. garden, an ind- Indigenous meadow. Right. And so there's um, 12,000 Indigenous plants. Oh, wow. On the roof of the building. And... Prior to our building, there was only one Indigenous plant on that site. Right. So that, wow. You know, we had this incredible opportunity to mm. add something to yeah. the context, which I personally feel quite proud of. Yeah, that definitely. That we were able to do that. Yeah, and it's not just um, architecture as it's typically um, sometimes thought of in terms of a building. It sounds like Peter Elliott... Um, architects in general um, yeah it's not just buildings that you do it's also thinking about urban design and um, bringing landscape into it as well it sounds yeah and that's always been quite important to me and that's why when I I had my year out between my two degrees I made I worked for a landscape architect and an architect because I think you can't think about the two things independent of each other yeah there's always a context yeah uh, for, for what you're building so in that particular case study, you know, in that particular project, the context was mm. incredibly important and incredibly yeah. valuable. So, Yeah, and a huge opportunity. Um, I also really liked what you sort of mentioned earlier, um, putting forward this idea of this project coming along at the right time for them and for you and mm. for your practice um, and, you know, all the, all the kind of people who were involved. And another one of my questions is, um, yeah, talking about, your career teaching in university and how that has maybe worked alongside is that something that's been going for the 15 years that you've been at Peter Elliott or a little bit less but sort of quite parallel yeah it is it has been 
Uh, so I taught, the first, my first experience of teaching was when I graduated third year in Tasmania and I went back as a first year t- tutor. Right. Um, and I was teaching with John Anker, yeah. who's um, son of Sydney Anker from the um, Anker Mortlock Woolley um, practice in Sydney. Right. So, and he, he was great. He was, he was my tutor, but I got to yeah. share with him and I realised that I really enjoyed teaching. Yeah. And so I got back to Melbourne and started working at Peter Elliott's and there were a couple of opportunities that came up early on to teach, but it wasn't because I was still trying to establish what I was doing in the office. I wasn't able to take them. Yeah. But then once I'd had a couple of years in, I was able to mm. juggle, to, to do the two things. So I started teaching sessionally at Melbourne University and I think I've been teaching for about 12 years. Wow, yeah. Um, sort of leading studios and uh, more recently teaching thesis. And I've, cool. I've always found the balance of teaching and practising really good for me. Yeah. Because I think that the, the skills are... You might not feel like it when you're studying. Mm. You might feel like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. But the, what you learn in architecture school at university is absolutely what happens in practice. Yeah. You're doing presentations. Mm. You, you have to articulate... The reasons why you're doing the work that you're doing, yeah, um, and you, you you're thinking and designing and working all the time. So I realised um, a couple of things because when you work, you realise lots of things about yourself. Yeah, and when you teach, I think it's heightened because you're in a room with twelve people and you, yeah. you've got to manage it. You've got to control, not control this term, but you you really have to kind of set some boundaries for how it's going to operate right. and how it's going to work so yeah. it's, again that's a transferable skill you're working with teams and mm. people and um so I what I did know about myself is I'm not really I'm quite shy right I'm quite um introverted person yeah not necessarily public speaker <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite like you know I love everything about my job but I'm not always the front not always out in front yeah and so I think through my work at university I learnt a lot more about how to um, kind of develop those skills. Yeah. And that was really valid. That's been really valuable for me. Um, and aside from the fact that, you know, you're doing different things in practice to what you're doing at university. So right. the university is much more conceptual world. You get to play. You yeah. get to kind of talk about ideas for hours, which is fantastic. Yeah. And in practice, you you know, you're, you have to be more grounded. Yeah. You still talk about the ideas that's all happening, but you've got to mm. make it happen. Yeah. So there's a lot more, um, you know, the logic and um, in practice that you have to you have to deal with so yeah practicalities of day-to-day life as well <laughs> that's right and in some ways it going between the two provides a bit of relief from one or the other yeah um so I've always found that to be um a really beneficial part of my practice and I've um more recently started to work with the institute so um uh, chairing the CPD advisory group, so right. been, which is slightly different, but it, it's very interesting as well. Um, coming up with um, continuing professional development um, courses for architects, cool. so it's beyond university. It's yeah. starting to think about well, what what do you? We're always learning, mm. and um, 
as you were saying earlier, you're just having conversations with people, you can learn things. So yeah. um, actually looking at the profession in a way and uh, thinking about, okay, well, what um, would, you know, what do we what do we need to talk about? What do we need to know? What do you actually need to learn? And there's yeah. lots of opportunities, opportunities and options out there. So I've established um, a couple of different um, research in practice, oh, it, the streams in the CBD um, group, and one of them is research in practice, so bringing people together who are undertaking research in practice and having a bit of a forum and talking about what's happening out there because Mm. I think different to universities, practice happens and it tends to stay within within the practice. It's true. It's not always shared, so kind of looking at ways you can kind of share information and talk yeah. to each other. Because having taught at uni, you see a, a room of 12 or 16 people, you know, undertaking a single problem. Right. You know, all with the same site, all with yeah. the same brief. And you, no one, no one does the same project. Yeah. It's never the same. Sharing knowledge can only strengthen the profession. Yeah. The other, the other um, CPD uh, stream that we've got going on is parallel practice. Right. So looking at, because that's something I'm quite interested in, looking at all the things we do in architecture that's not kind of straight capital mm. A architecture. So right. looking at things like sessional teaching, mm. at architectural writing, oh, cool. doing podcasts, yeah. um, uh, photography, architectural photography, that kind right. of thing. And, you know, share, kind of sharing, you know, information about how, how to do that because right. it not only provides, I think it strengthens your practice mm. to do something in parallel to it but it provides an income income stream Ooh. often investigating things like research or parallel types of practice or yeah. other types of practices are really important and interesting yeah and the other one we've got going we've got professional practice series and um the gold medal um recipient series which we've had three so far which have all been fantastic the cpd we set up at the institute is usually you know quite small and quite intimate which means yeah in those instances, you get a small group of people who can have a conversation or ask questions. Mm. You know, we, we got, got to sit down with Peter Wilson and, and, cool. ask, and talk to him and ask questions, which you can't do in a massive lecture theatre. Yeah. Um, so that's the benefit of kind of having that. And so we've had Graham Gunn and Peter McIntyre. Right. Um, I think John Denton's coming up later in the year. Right. And Peter Wilson. So that's been super interesting as well. So it's not unlike what you're doing with the podcast. You get to... Yeah. Because, you know, Peter McIntyre, I think, received the gold medal in the late 90s, 96, I think it was. Right. And so he's had, like, a whole another career. He's had a career, second career longer than, wow. than you've been practising. Yeah. Um, post-winning the wow. highest accolade you can. Yeah. And so I was kind of interested to see, well, what do you yeah. do? Where do you go after that? Yeah. What happens then? Yes. So That's so interesting. Oh, so you've become a chapter counsellor fairly recently. Was that mm-hmm. last year? Or at the beginning of this beginning year. Beginning of this year, so March was my first um, meeting. So, will you sign on for twelve months, or uh, is it like a couple a, of year? It's a two. It's a, a two year term. Okay, cool. So you get elected. So I think yeah. every year, half of the committee comes up for election. Right. So you've always got a continuity of people that cool. are remaining on the on the council. Yeah. And so I'm halfway into my first year, so I right. have another year. Um, and then we'll see what happens after that. Being part, I mean, gender and architecture is something that this podcast has stemmed a little bit from. Is there anything that you guys have been thinking about? Um, 
Well, uh, there's a National Gender Equity Committee. Right. And I believe there's going to be a diversity committee as well. Okay, cool. Oh, awesome. Um, And the National... um, the National Council have just endorsed um, to undertake a reconciliation action plan oh, nationally, cool. but uh, that's come out of Vic chapter. Right. So people like Vanessa Bird have, and have put and Pen Malat have put a lot of work into doing mm. that it, um, in Vic chapter, and and I, I believe they took it to national to say, hey, we should be doing this nationally. So there are. Uh, there's so many really great yeah. things happening that yeah. you, you don't you often unsee. Right. So you kind of, unless you get involved or you start to kind of ask those types of mm. questions, you don't necessarily know they're going on. But there are lots of good people doing lots of good things. Yeah. Um, Probably like a collection of approaches, baby. And it sounds like, um, sounds like there are a lot of women involved in the Vic chapter. Yeah. Are there? So it's sort of like, yeah, different perspectives coming yeah, in there is and it's always i don't know that's something i think about is that kind of um do you do you is it something that you push through um to try and kind of get legislation mm. or to you know enforce mm. or is it something that you kind of just do right and yeah i think there's a bit of both right but what i can see much more so than when i first started practicing is there's all these really great um women around who are just doing what yeah. they do doing what doing really great work yeah and and doing it well and have profiles and are doing what they do and i'm really hopeful at some point we're not going to be having conversations yeah. about gender anymore yeah because um everyone's seeing the value in everyone's else's input yeah uh so yeah I think that's such a good point and probably I think a lot of people feel that way and Mm -hmm. feel that you can go about your day and sort of think oh it's not something I'll think about it's not something that I want to be um on the cards at all but then I'll walk into a meeting and there'll be 12 guys and I'll be the only female and Mm -hmm. suddenly for me it's not an issue with anyone in terms of how they're treating me, but it's the dynamics and it's the numbers. Um, mm. And I feel like, yeah, um, oh, the po- this podcast is such an interesting thing because on <laughs> one side I don't want to discuss it too much and make it more of an issue by going down this stream of saying, well, we're this group of women and we're working in architecture. But mm. then on the other hand, what I am liking about it is it's bringing um, into the conversation other people who typically wouldn't be listening or maybe thinking about um, these things are floating around. So it's yeah, I find that that sort of thought really interesting. It's a funny thing being yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, and I have, and I think it's a lot harder when you're at early earlier yeah. in your career. Yeah, because you you are tending to look towards role models or to right. and if there was another older woman sitting mm. at that table of twelve, you, you would have someone there. Yeah. Um, but I've certainly been to those I've been to those meetings and um, thought about it a lot. And I think what I, my comment on that would be there are mentors everywhere. Yeah. And they're not they don't have to be the same gender as you. Yeah. The same age as you or older than you. Yeah. You can take inspiration from anywhere or anyone. Yeah. And I think it's important to really sort of recognise 
your own abilities and your own powers in that situation to figure out, well, if that's intimidating, why why is that? Yeah. Because, as you say, no one, especially now, it's not often that you don't you don't necessarily get treated differently. You just feel, mm. you know, it might just be a feeling. And I think it's important because I, I, after I had, I've got a three-year-old, after I had my three-year-old, I'd go into those meetings and I'd be sitting in a table of engineers and I'd say, oh, you know, I've got a, you know, head to pick up, got to do the childcare pickup. And you get the whole table, all of these men talking about their yeah. kids or, you yeah. know, there's a common, you know, starts to be a common ground. Yeah. And it's really not about, you know, when you're talking about families, it's not necessarily, a, it's not a gender issue. It's, it's so true. sharing. The same, the same, oh, I've got to get to childcare before yeah. six o'clock and they lock us out. <laughs> I think um, if you can, you know, relax a bit and find find your way and, and where you feel your strength and confidence, mm. um, that it's really helpful. And I, I'm a strong believer that I don't, I don't think men need to take, that women need to take the same role as men. I think right. women need to develop their own skills and their own voice. Yeah. And it might be slightly different to the way a man does it or what a man does. Yeah. Um, and that that should be valued and is equally important, treated as equally yeah. important. Yeah. Um, How has it been working alongside Peter Elliott? Peter's great. Um, but I realised, I think, oh, there was at some point in the last 15 years where I was just like, oh, I just, you know really would like I was looking for a female perspective right um and I just sort of looked around and I thought to myself oh it it doesn't I don't doesn't have to be a a female mentor but I need to figure out how to how I want to be and how I Mm. want to establish myself and Peter's already done that yeah. You know, he's done that. I need to do that for myself. Right, yeah. And I think that was, in a way, if I was, there was a female role model I was always looking to, I might have done that a bit later. Right. I might not have done it, or maybe, yeah. maybe I would, I don't know. But there, yeah. were, but there certainly weren't any senior females in our office. But I just sort of thought, oh, okay, well, you know, Peter's, he's great. He's, he's, a, he's a great mentor and yeah. he's... Um, a good person to look towards but I think at some point you have to go okay well now it's it's my time I need to Mm. and so that's why I started teaching and that's why I started getting involved in chapter council and Mm. doing all of these things because that you know there were things I was interested in Mm. um so I think that there's definitely a role for mentors Mm. and definitely a, a role to looking towards other people but it's also super important to establish um your own your own path yeah and empower yourself yeah and if you want to be heard you can there are ways to be heard even if you are an introvert (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, where what does the future look like the moment at peter elliott a direct pathway that you can sort of foresee for yourself or are you things like sounds like things are just happening uh, i'm a little bit going with the flow a lot there are lots of things happening um i i think for me, at the moment, it, it is very much looking at things that are coming up and assessing uh, if that's what I want to do or where I want to go um, mm. and just seeing, you know, what opportunities are around and, and yeah. are available. But I'm certainly enjoying, uh, you know, the work at the Institute, I'm still enjoying my work at Peter Elliott's and 
I haven't been teaching for a few semesters, so right. I feel like I'll probably mm. go back and do a bit, go go and do some more teaching. Yeah. Um, and see, just you know, follow follow the path that's the most interesting and feels the most right. Yeah. And that's I think that's the. I've never been a big planner career. Mm. You know, this is my career. I'm going to, have to do this next or that next. Mm. You sort of have this idea. You know, ideas come to you and you follow them and opportunities come and you follow them and yeah um just to look back on your career whether it's in teaching or practice have there been any particularly challenging moments that you can um reflect on and maybe offer some advice Hmm. um i think i need to how to put this uh in a no i i i think Rather than challenges, there have mm. been times I've felt where maybe this isn't quite my path or maybe right. this doesn't feel quite right or right. working with this person might not be the best mm. thing for me. So I think recognising, I'm certainly over my career, the course of my career, I've become better at recognising situations I w- I'd like to be in or, mm. or wouldn't like to be in mm. um, or things yeah, a little bit more quickly realising that maybe this isn't isn't quite right. And mm. I think just to maybe give an example of that, putting it into context of Peter and I gave a talk at the Institute to the Constructive Mentoring Program and we talked a lot about um, the types of clients we have and the kind of work we do and um, developing the ability to say no right. to something yeah, and to recognise when don't think something's going to be quite the right fit, whether it's mm. a client or, you know, whatever it might be, yeah. and and feeling confident to say, well, maybe not now or yeah. maybe in a few years or um, just no to, to something because there will always be another opportunity. Mm. Um, I've heard of a few people say saying no to something means that you're saying yes to something else and giving that time free for something else to pop up that might be a bit more aligned at that point in time. Well, and That's right. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I, it's certainly something that's taken me a really long time to um, to be comfortable with because mm. you, it's like, oh, there's a great opportunity. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to do that. Or yeah. this, this is coming my way, I'm going to do that. And to be really thoughtful and considered when those moments arise and think well is this actually the best for me right now yeah. or is it really what I want to do or is that what someone else wants me to do yeah um so I think it's good to to not always jump at at opportunities to be yeah considered about it I think that's another thing about keeping the practice small is when we are really busy we've had to say we've we've actually said no to some yeah. really fantastic opportunities yeah. and um, being comfortable to do that and not to overcommit. Um, it's yeah. easy to overcommit. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're establishing yourself and, um, you know, you've got to take care of how, uh, of, of yourself. You've got to take care to yeah. not burn yourself out by doing, trying to do too many things. So, yeah. And, and that's the way you can keep the work keep the co- the quality in the work by not overcommitting just yeah. saying yes to this yes we're going to we're going to do this project and mm. we're going to do it really well mm. and not have to scale up and then suddenly scale down when there's no work anymore or, yeah i think that also kind of ties in a little bit to what you were saying at the start about values and um also thinking about 
different practices and Peter Elliott architects, you, I mean, you don't do every type of architecture. There are mm. things that you do and you do them really well. You can't do everything. It's okay to, you know, specialise or yeah. to be really good at that one thing. Yeah. You know, that doesn't you don't always have to do everything or say yes to everything because mm. um, it, it can dilute the quality of the work sometimes if it's... Yeah. If it's not really what your where your skill set is. I think that's a good place to finish up. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Catherine, for what was a lovely chat. Next up, we'll be chatting to Julian Ang from Studio Plus 3. During this episode, we travel to London to hear about her prior experiences studying at the AA and working for Heatherwick Studios. What a brilliant backdrop to beginning to understand Studio Plus 3's approach to architecture and design, amongst many other international influences. I'll chat to you then. Making brings up all these uh, issues, maybe, that you might not have come across if you only did a plan or something like that. Making something in, in physical terms starts the brain thinking in a way that's different to just looking at a computer screen which (laughs) is definitely something that I think you know in this kind of world of technology and being bombarded with information and um, you know social media and all of that all the time we have this sort of screen-based life and I think getting out of that world is often really valuable just to reset the brain